Well, welcome everybody to week one of Stranger Things, or maybe I should say episode one of Stranger Things. Either way, for the next four weeks, we're going to be exploring some of the more weird and unusual aspects of our faith. I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, but the Bible is full of some strange stuff, right? If you've been a Christian or in the church for a long time, you've, you've kind of gotten used to some of these unusual, weird things that we believe as Christians. But if you're new or you've never kind of grown up in the church, if you just step back, looking from the outside in, there's some weird stuff going on in the Bible and in our faith journeys, right? I mean, the Bible talks about God miraculously intervening in the lives of individuals. The, the Bible has all kinds of stories about angels and demons. And the Bible even says that when you become a believer, the Spirit of God is placed inside of you. Now that's just weird, right? Think about that. God's Spirit somehow is inside of you, impacting, influencing, moving, and directing your life. And so we, we kind of look at some of these strange things. And we're going to spend some time over the next few weeks talking about stranger things. You know, I spend a lot of time talking with people who are not believers, and it's interesting how people often respond to the Bible because there's so much supernatural stuff in there. Some people respond to the Bible by just saying, well, it's all a bunch of baloney. It's got all these weird, you know, mythical stories. So the whole thing must be made up. Some people say, no, it's not all made up, but it was written in ancient times. And so the ancient writers really didn't know. They didn't know about science and all the stuff we know because it was written in a pre-enlightenment period of time. These writers just tried to explain what they saw through the supernatural. But it really all can be explained naturally. And maybe you feel that way or think that way about all the weird stuff in the Bible, but even for those of us who believe that the Bible is God's truth, inerrant truth of God, everything in here, it's even hard for us to understand how these strange things impact our daily life. And so I just want to spend a couple of weeks exploring these difficult, but what I believe are critical aspects of our faith journey. Now we have three goals, three guiding principles as we look at the weird, the wild, and the wonderful stuff that's in the Bible. Our first goal is to be biblical. We want to approach this topic from a biblical view. You know, not what's in the latest Stephen King novel or what we learned watching TV of Touched by an Angel or Lucifer, or not what we saw in the Exorcist movie growing up or Damien in the Omen movie. We want to look at what God says about the supernatural. Our second goal is to be balanced. We want to take a balanced approach to these topics. We want to avoid extremism in any direction. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer and thinker of the 20th century, says when it comes to the supernatural, Christians tend to make one of two mistakes, either an underemphasis of the supernatural or an overemphasis 
of the supernatural. So we want to avoid, you know, seeing every bad thing that happens to us as a demon and every good thing as a miracle. You know, you're driving down the road, your car breaks down, and you're, I'm under attack from Satan. You know, he's out to get me. It's the demon of the car engine. No, probably not. Probably because you hadn't changed your oil in 50,000 miles. I don't know. And so we want to take a balanced approach. But number three, and this is the most important goal, we want this to be a practical series. We want to be practical. We want to talk about how these weird supernatural things in the Bible impact our daily lives. Now listen, hopefully over the next couple of weeks you're going to learn a lot of new information. Maybe you things you didn't know about the Bible and about the supernatural stuff, the things in the spirit world. I hope you get a lot of new information. But the purpose of this series is not information, it's transformation. I mean, I don't really care how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, but I'm very interested in how God's angels impact and work in our lives. So we want to be very practical because one thing, that the Bible is crystal clear about is not only is there an unseen spiritual world, but what happens in that spiritual world impacts and influences our lives. And so today we're going to look at what I think is the most common way that the spiritual, the unseen world, interacts with our physical world, and that's through something called spiritual warfare. How many of you have heard that phrase before, spiritual warfare? How many of you are like, what is he talking about? Sure, thank you for being honest. Well, spiritual warfare, I think, is best defined in the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul is writing to this church in the ancient city of Ephesus. And this church, the people in this church are going through a lot of struggles. A lot of battles. They're struggling with impacting their community, getting a lot of pushback for the community. They got struggles with their marriages, struggles in their families, struggling in their businesses. They're, they're, they got a lot of fights on their hand. And notice what Paul says to them in verse 12. He says, you need to understand, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the what? What does that say? The unseen world, the spiritual world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly realm. In other words, Paul is saying sometimes there's more to our conflicts and our struggles than just what meets the eye. Sometimes there's more going on in our struggles than just our internal struggle with our sin nature. There is a spiritual world, a spiritual battle that impacts our lives. Paul is saying, understand, there's a very real battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And if you are a Christ follower, you are engaged in that war. In fact, I would go so far as to say that when you make attempts to grow in your faith, when you try to push forward and become you know, closer to Jesus and live out your faith, the more you try to move ahead, the more resistance you're going to run into in your daily life. And that's not just true for us as individuals. That is true for us collectively as a church. In the 20-year history of Cedar Creek Church, we've had many times where God has called us to, to move out into the kingdom of darkness, to bring light, to bring hope, 
to hurting people. And every time we move forward against the darkness, against the hopelessness, we run into resistance from our enemy. And so this morning, as we look at this strange thing called spiritual warfare, I want to do two things. First, I, I want to look at two key truths. Two truths you absolutely have to know to understand spiritual warfare. And then I want to look at two questions. Two key questions that every one of us who are Christ followers needs to ask about spiritual warfare. So let's jump in. You know, some of us, if you stop and think, about the fact that you're a part of a battle, a spiritual battle, that you have this powerful enemy working against you, it can cause you to be paralyzed by fear. It can cause you to feel intimidated. And so because of that, I think the very first truth we need to understand about spiritual warfare is this. We fight from victory, not for victory. We're fighting our battles not to try to win, we're fighting from a platform of how we have already won. Yes, the battles are still raging, but make no mistake about it, the war's already been won. I've read to the end of the book, and God wins, and because we as Christ followers are His children, we win. See, some of us have this idea that spiritual warfare is like a yin and a yang thing. That there are two equal but opposite forces, the force of good and the force of bad. And these equal but opposite forces are waging war against one another. And we feel like we got to get in there to try to make sure good defeats evil. That is not true. God is sovereign. We sing that song, God has no equal. God has no rival. Satan is a created being. God is the sovereign God of the universe. It's a done deal. It's not even a fair fight. It's like when the U.S. military invaded Grenada what, in the 1980s. Yeah, there was some fighting going on, but it was a foregone conclusion. Who was going to win? And that's how it is with spiritual warfare. And so our role is not to try to get in there and help determine the outcome. Our role is to not allow the battles to deflate and defeat us. Look at 1 John 5, 4. It says, for every child of God, and by the way, if you're a believer, you are a child of God. Every child of God defeats this evil world. And we achieve this victory through our hard work. Is that what it says? We achieve it through what? Through our faith. As Christ followers, our victory was won on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. When Jesus sacrificially gave his life, shed his blood so that we could be free from the bondage of sin, in that moment, it was game over. We win. The way the Bible pictures it is it says the Savior crushed the head of the serpent with, the, with his heel. Any of you ever killed a snake, crushed it, or cut its head off? It might keep wiggling for a long time, but it is dead. The war's been won. Yes, we still got to fight, but the outcome is not up for grabs. It's kind of like our nation's civil war. The civil war ended when General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse. But did you know for months after that, 
battles continued to rage in the Civil War. Some of them because the generals didn't get the information. It's not like they could read it on Facebook or Instagram that General Lee surrendered. It took a while to get the news to them, right? But did you know some of the generals kept fighting? Not because they didn't know. It's because they were unwilling to surrender. Satan is a defeated foe. But he's also a very formidable and dangerous foe. Never forget that we are in a battle. But also never forget that we fight that battle from a place of victory. I think that's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Heads I win, tails I win. No matter what battle I'm in right now. The war's already been won. The question you have to wrestle with, I have to wrestle with, is are we going to keep living like losers? Or are we going to start living in the victory that's already been won? We fight from victory, not for it. And then number two, the second truth, this is so critical. We are not alone in our battles. We're not alone in our battles. Not only have we been assured of victory, but we've also been assured that we don't fight these battles alone. And I'm going to tell you, that is good news for many of us sitting in here today, including your pastor. I know somehow you, you have the idea that your pastor doesn't face these kind of battles, that the enemy doesn't attack his family, his children, the people that he loves the most. But I'm telling you, you're dead wrong. Your pastor is in a battle. Your pastor's family is in a battle. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's a battle with your health. Maybe it's a battle in your finances. And like me, you're starting to realize that this thing is way bigger than you can manage on your own. It's way bigger than you can work it out by yourself and if you're like me you're not just struggling to try to see some victory down the road you're struggling every minute just to keep fighting and if that's you this morning i'm convinced that god somehow supernaturally brought you to this place to say to you as he says to me you are not alone you're not fighting this battle alone God is doing stuff in the unseen world that you cannot even imagine. I love this picture that the Bible gives of this in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. In chapter 6, we read about the nation of Israel in, in a war, in a battle with the Arameans. And the Israelites are winning at every turn. It's like whatever the Arameans try to throw at them, the Israelites know it before. They try to set up an ambush. And the king of Israel, he takes his troops in another direction. And the Aramean king is like, calls all of his, soul, his officers together and says, we got a spy in the camp. There's a leaker, somebody. Somebody is telling the king of Israel what we're going to do before we do it because they're one step ahead of us all the time. And one of the officers raised his hand and said, king, it's not one of us. It's this guy named Elisha, this prophet of God. It's like he knows what you're thinking before you even think it. He tells the king of Israel, and the king of Israel outsmarts you. And the Armenian king says, look, we got to find this guy. we got to wipe out Elisha. 
And so they send out all the troops and they start looking for him. And for some stupid reason, the king of Israel allows Elisha to go out away from the army with no bodyguards, no troops, just one servant. So it's Elisha and his servant. They're in this area called Dothan. They got no protection. Well, the Arameans discovered that's where Elisha is. They call their entire army together. And during the night, while Elisha and his servant are sleeping, they surround his enti- that entire city. Thousands of troops, chariots. The next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up, I guess, to go out to get some firewood. He walks outside, looks up, and is like, holy crud. We are about to get crushed. He goes running back in and panics like, Elisha, Elisha, the army's here. They're going to kill us. They're going to crush us. And Elisha's like, chill out, dude. Our army's way bigger than their army. And the servant's like, I don't know what you've been smoking, man, but we ain't got no army. I don't know if you've looked around, but our army's all the way in Samaria. It's just me and you, dude. I'm just a lowly servant, and you're a preacher. I'm pretty sure you don't know how to fight. We're about to get crushed. And I love what Elisha does. He walks the servant outside and he prays and he asks God to open his servant's eyes. And look at what happens, verse 17. It says, then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, God pulled back the curtain for just a a brief moment and allowed this servant to see the unseen reality of his circumstances and not just the seen circumstances. And that's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for you. Whatever battle you're in, whatever enemy you're dealing with, that God somehow would just pull back the curtain and let you see that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. When it comes to this battle, we fight from victory. We don't fight alone, but make no mistake about it, we got to fight. We can't just sit back in the recliner with Cheetos and say, God is fighting all this battle. I don't need to do anything. We are in a fight. Yes, we're going to win. And yes, God is fighting for us and with us, but we still got to get in the fight. And because we are in the fight, there are two questions every good soldier has to ask. Two key questions for us for spiritual warfare. Question one, who's the enemy? Who's the enemy? Who am I fighting against? Because if there's one thing history has proven, when you know who your enemy is, the chances of victory increase. When you don't know who your enemy is, your chance of victory decreases. You see that in the military history of our nation, right? For the first part of our nation's life, we were like winning every war we were in. You know, undisputed. We were undefeated. You know, the Revolutionary War, the World War I, World War II, those were clear victories and everybody knew it. Then you fast forward into the, the latter part of the century and all of a sudden we're in Korea and Vietnam and the war on terror and all of a sudden it's like we're not winning so much. Why is that? Well, maybe there's a lot of factors, but I think one of the factors is in these latter wars, it's hard to tell who the real enemy is. Fighting guerrilla war, fighting against terrorists because our enemy hides among the people, the population. We don't wear uniforms, it's not obvious. Red coats or Nazis or the, whoever it is, 
So the harder it is to know who your enemy is, the tougher it makes it. Here's why I want you to understand that. Because when you're in a spiritual warfare battle, it is so easy to see other people as the enemy. Or it's easy to see your circumstances, that's the enemy. Or, or the government or, or the other political party, they're, they're the problem. And maybe they're part of the battle, but they are not your true enemy. Look what the Bible says, 1 Peter 5 eight. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, which is who? What does it say? The devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Can I just tell you, you have a very real enemy. He's not some cartoon character in a, a red cape and horns and a pitchfork. He is a powerful spiritual being. He was one of the most powerful angels that God ever created. And this powerful enemy wants to take you out. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy this church. He wants to destroy the, the unity that we have as a church. Because he knows if he can get us fighting with one another, we'll lose sight of the fact that the battle is against the darkness outside. And we will fight amongst ourselves over silly things that don't matter, like music style and what color t-shirts our volunteers wear. And we will lose sight of the fact that the enemy is out there in the darkness. And he's called us to something so much greater than our own personal preferences. He has called us to fight the enemy of darkness and hopelessness and brokenness that is destroying lives all around us. we got to know the enemy. We have seen the enemy. It's not each other. It's not other churches in our community. It's not politics. It's not the legal system. Our enemy is Satan. In any fight, whether it's military, whether it's an athletic contest, or whether it's your personal spiritual battle, the key to victory is knowing the enemy, not just who he is, but how he operates. Look at what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 2.11. Paul tells us that, So that Satan will not outsmart us, and then check this out, for we are familiar with his evil scheme. Circle that word, scheme. In the Greek language, the original language of the New Testament, that word schemes is literally the word metados. Metados. It's where we get our English word method. Paul's saying we know the devil's method. We know his operating system. We know his playbook. We know how he operates. Yes, Satan is a powerful enemy, but he is also a very predictable enemy. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about Satan and demons and how they operate in the schemes of the devil. We're going to spend some time looking at how he operates. But today, I just want to look at what I think is Satan's favorite method, his favorite weapon against us. You know what it is? Pride. Pride. Satan loves pride. If Satan were an MMA fighter, pride would be his signature move. 
It's his go-to knockout punch. The, the reason I know that is because I see it throughout all of Scripture. The Old Testament book of Ezekiel, which is where we're told about how Satan was the greatest, the most beautiful of all of God's angels, and he was so beautiful that he decided he didn't want to spend his life worshiping God. He wanted to be God. What is that? Pride. Or when Satan shows up like a snake in the Garden of Eden, how does he tempt Eve to eat the fruit? You'll be like God. What is that? Pride. In the wilderness, Satan tempting Jesus. What does he say? Climb up on the tower of the temple. Throw yourself off. The angels will catch you, and everybody will say you're wonderful. What is that? Pride. Why is it so important to understand that about our enemy? Because it tells me that anywhere I see pride in my life, that is the enemy working against me. Every time I become prideful, I know that is a spiritual battle with Satan. We have a very real enemy. He wants to destroy your life, and pride is his favorite weapon. Number two, the second question every good soldier has to ask is, what's my role? What is my role? How do I engage in the battle? How do I fight this fight? What are, what are my weapons? What are my tools for this battle? We'll look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10. Paul says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. What does that mean? That we have weapons that have divine, divine power to demolish strongholds. Well, I think it means two things. First, I think it means the weapons we fight with come from God's power, not mine. That these weapons have the power of God. But the second thing I believe is that the weapons God gives us strike at the heart of our enemy. Isn't that what a stronghold is? Our enemy's place where they camp out, where they, they build their forts in, in their sweet spot of where the enemy wants to be. And Paul is saying God has given us laser-guided weapons that strike at the heart of the enemy. And in fact, if you read the rest of that passage, you'll see Paul starts talking about our minds as being one of the best battlefields. Our minds, how we think, can often be a stronghold for the enemy. Because our thoughts control our actions, and our actions control the direction of our life. And so God has given us these weapons that strike right at the heart of the enemy. So what are those weapons? Well, Paul goes on to tell us three of our best weapons in this spiritual war. First, the armor of God. The armor of God. I don't know what you know about armor, but armor is a protective weapon. It's a defensive weapon. It's a weapon that protects you from the enemy. And Paul gives us a list of, of what those pieces of armor are in verses 13 through 17. Check out what he says. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Notice Paul says, put on the armor. You've got to do this. You know, it's not like the day you gave your heart to Christ and got baptized, that you came up out of the water and all of a sudden were fully armor-alled for the rest of your life. No, you got to daily put on this armor. you got to be intentional about putting on the armor. Well, what is the armor? 
Well, look at the list. He says it starts with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. And we're not going to go into a lot of details on those pieces of armor. I'm encouraging you to do that in your home group this week. Talk about those pieces of armor and what they mean. Two things I want you to understand this morning about this armor. One, it comes from God. Look at that list. We don't have any of that on our own, right? We don't have truth. Truth comes from God. We don't have righteousness. Only God is righteous. We don't have the gospel of peace. The gospel is a gift from God. We don't even have faith. Any faith we have, God has to give us the strength and the courage to even have faith. We don't give ourselves salvation. Salvation comes from God alone. These weapons all come from God. But the second thing I want you to notice is that all of these pieces of armor protect our front. They all protect our front. None of this armor is for our backside. We don't get any armor for our backside. Why is that? Because God never intends for us to fight alone. What protects our backside is other believers. That's why it's so important to be an authentic community, to be connected, to do life and be real with a small group of people because we are to have each other's back. You know, we just read earlier, Satan prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Do you know anything about lions? Do you know how they hunt? They always separate the weak members of the herd from the herd. They separate them off so that they're easy to kill. And let me just tell you, Satan loves it when you isolate. When you hide, you don't go to home group, you don't come to church. When you don't tell anybody about your struggle and you put on a smile and you pretend you got it going on, Satan loves that because you're cut off from the herd and you are easy to take out. Put on the armor of God. Our second weapon is the Word of God. The Word of God. The Bible is not just a book about God. It is the power of God for our fight. Look at the second part of verse 17. Paul says, The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Armor is defensive, but the sword is an offensive weapon. The sword is what we use to advance, to move forward, to take back territory. Like when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, what did he use every time? The Word of God. He quoted Scripture, right? It is written. It is, it's like, shh, pull out the sword. Game on, Satan. Let's fight. And that's what God's Word is for your life. That's why you need to spend time in it every day. That's why you need to memorize Scripture, not some religious hoop to jump through, but to sharpen your sword for the battle that you are fighting. And then finally, our third weapon, and I believe our most powerful weapon, prayer. Prayer is our most powerful weapon against the enemy. Paul says in verse 18, and we are to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. Let me tell you something. I don't know how powerful you think your prayers are, but I guarantee you they're more powerful than you think they are. The Bible says the, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful, effective. It impacts the supernatural world, which in turn impacts the natural world. And here's the thing. 
your prayer is striking at the enemy even if you don't see results. Even if you don't see anything changing, keep praying because when you're praying, God is moving. Remember when we studied the life of Daniel a couple of months ago? And there was that great story from Daniel chapter 10 where Daniel was in a fight. He was in a struggle. And so he just prayed and fasted for 21 days, three weeks, day after day. Pray, pray, pray. And nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. It's like God is not listening. He sees no, it's like, he doesn't even feel like his prayers are getting above the ceiling. You ever feel that way? You ever prayed like that? And nothing happened? That's how Daniel felt. And then on the 21st day, guess what happened? An angel of the Lord showed up to Daniel and said, Sorry I'm late, man, but the minute you started praying, God sent me to battle over here. And I've been battling with the king of Syria, and you couldn't see any results, but me and the archangel Michael, we were in a battle because the minute you prayed, God sent his angels. And that's what God is doing in your life. Some of you have been praying not three weeks, you've been praying three months, you've been praying three years, maybe you've been praying 30 years for God to move, and you see nothing. But I want you to know God is moving in the unseen world every time you pray. That's how you fight this battle. And so as we close this morning, let's just do that. I don't want to stand up here and talk about the power of prayer. I want us to pull out the prayer weapon right now and aim that laser-guided missile right at the heart of our enemy. So let's do that across all of our campuses. Just close your eyes. Just bow your head for just a moment. I, I know you want to run. I know you want to get lunch, whatever it is. But stay right here for just another moment. I don't know what battle you're in. But I know right now you just need to cry out to God and ask Him to move in a mighty way. To fight this battles in ways you can't even imagine. Maybe for you, you just need to pray and ask God to reveal where pride is in your life. Where the enemy has gotten a stronghold because you think you can do it on your own. Or you don't want to lose the, uh, the perception that people have of you and you don't want to admit that life is bigger than you can handle. Or, or maybe for you, you just need to pray and ask God to give you the courage and the consistency to put on his armor every day. Because Satan loves to strike when you least expect it. And he will strike at the heart of those who are closest to you. But you're not fighting alone. And you are fighting from a place of victory. There is power in the name of Jesus. Pray in his name right now. The Bible says that the name of Jesus, the darkness trembles. Every knee, every knee bows to cry out to him. Lord, we need you desperately. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.